Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Tuesday, October 16th, 2018, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series. In this program, award-winning historian Sean Malentz illuminates the political and constitutional struggle over slavery that began during the Revolution and culminated in the Civil War. He is in conversation with New York Times editorial writer Brent Staples. Thank you. Hello, everybody. Hello, everybody. Good evening, all. How are you? Good to see you. Good evening. Okay. Here we are. I just want to say how happy I am to be back in uh, my home away from home, as I always call it here, and to be on stage with Sean Wilentz. Um, we were just trying to figure out the last time we were together on stage. A while ago. It's been more than 20 years. Uh, we, we don't remember the particulars. I remember we had a great time. <laughs> and the, the dinner, dinner and the wine after yeah, was especially good. good. Right, right, right. But thank you all for coming out, and uh, it's good to see your faces, and especially for those you've come back a second time in such a short period of time to see the same guy. Um, we're going to start right now with the closing stanzas of the Revolutionary War. Um, the British have come to um, bring the wayward colony back in line. Um, They have failed, even though they have done an interesting maneuver. As the war is going badly, they say to everyone who was black and enslaved, you come fight in the British lines. If you do, at the end, however this comes out, you get your freedom. Closing end of the war, the British are pent up in New York um, and with several, uh, maybe 3,000 mm-hmm. um, formerly enslaved people worried about whether the British are going to keep their word. Um, as the negotiations get underway, the Treaty of Paris, uh, Henry Lawrence, who was a f- former um, head of the Constitutional Congress, I mean, uh, the Continental Congress, excuse me, inserts in the final formulation of the Treaty of Paris a provision that says to the British, you cannot carry away American property when you leave. And the property they're thinking of hmm. are the enslaved persons. Back in the stateside, our friend... George Washington, the combustible Mr. Washington, says to the British commander, he brings us up. George Washington has lost slaves in the war. He wants them back. He says to the British commander, Carlton, this is what the treaty says. And Carlton says as follows. No meaning can be placed upon the Treaty of Paris that invalidates promises that the crown has made to persons prior to this treaty, whether those persons be black or white, persons of all color. As we were saying, John Jay, Secretary of Foreign Affairs, is just 
appalled by this. But we have a situation in the end of the war where the colonies who established a declaration of independence and the inalienable rights of man have said before God and the world, we regard human beings of another color as property. That stage is set. Now, Sean. <clears throat> um, everyone's adult here, right? So if I curse a little bit, it's not a problem. You got to get used to this, folks. <laughs> you know, you have gotten some shit. Oh, yeah. For saying in this book mm -hmm. that the Constitutional Convention mm -hmm. uh, did a very important thing by not ratifying the idea of man as property. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that it left room for what would unfold right. in the next 70, 80 years. Right. But how do we get from a nation in which our general and mm -hmm. then our president mm -hmm. is passionately arguing mm -hmm. that persons are property? Right. And our foreign policy apparatus yes. is arguing the same. Yes. How do we get to the same yes. to equivocation yes. in the Constitutional Convention? Excellent point. Um, and I want to thank everybody for coming as well. Um, even more than that, the people who signed the Treaty of Paris included not just John Jay, but Benjamin Franklin. So Benjamin Franklin and John Jay affixed their signatures to a document which asserts, you know, affirms that slaves are property. That's in 1783. What happens in 1787, though, is going to be very different. Because there, Benjamin Franklin, Jay's not there, but he writes some of the Federalist Papers, will indeed make it very, very clear that slaves are not to be considered, or human beings are not to be considered property in, as, in, in national law. So what, what moved between 1783 and 1787? To understand it requires our understanding that in these years, in the 1780s, the Western world, white people in the Western world, are undergoing a tremendous moral transformation. To me, in fact, it's maybe the greatest moral transformation in modern history, where slavery, an institution that dated back to antiquity and had been accepted, as John Jay said, by every American, every white American, um, before the revolution is perfectly natural. Suddenly, people start saying, no, this is not natural. This is a sin, or this is a violation of natural rights, a combination of evangelical religion and, and the Enlightenment to say that slavery had to be gotten rid of. Now, the moment we're talking about is right in the middle of all of this. And by the time we get to the 1787 convention in Philadelphia, a lot has happened. Anti-slavery is a very new thing in the world in the, in the 1780s. But it's also been making some progress in America. Beginning in 1780, Five of the future states, all in the north, five of the future states and one state to be, Vermont, either began to end slavery or ended it outright, denying, as the Rhode Island law says quite explicitly, saying that the idea of property in man is an excrescence and must not be respected. Now, these are the first laws like this in history, anywhere. These are all beginning just in 1780. And this movement is getting underway. There's a couple of laws passed in 1784. There are debates in New York, New Jersey. 
they're not just talking about slavery in the North. They're talking about the very idea that human beings can be debased into property. And they're overthrowing that idea. And they're not, they're getting a lot of shit too. <laughs> Slaveholders are not giving way. They're not saying, oh yeah, you have a point. <laughs> they're saying no. And they fought back very, very hard. And it's one of the reasons why some of the laws are compromised. You know, it's gradual emancipation in, in many of the places rather in than New York, immediate. New Jersey. New York, New Jersey is going to be a little bit later, but yeah, Connecticut, Rhode Island, but not in Massachusetts, um, not in New Hampshire. There it's, you know, right away by judicial fiat. My point is only that this is a, a very volatile situation in the 1780s. By the time you get to 1787, these laws are beginning to be passed. They've been passed in a number of places, in judicial um, um, rulings in Massachusetts, getting rid of slavery. And a lot, of North, a lot of the delegates from the North have an idea that they want to, they're not going to get rid of slavery. They can't. They're not going to be able to get rid of slavery in the states where it already exists. They're not going to mess around with the property laws of the southern states any more than they're going to mess around with the property laws of the northern states. They're not going to do that. But what they can do is to contain slavery's growth. They can give the power of the new, to give power to the new governments they are erecting to contain slavery. They're going to do it by giving that power, that new government, the power to abolish the Atlantic slave trade, which was always considered the very first step towards ending slavery altogether. Well, Southerners know what's going on, and they show up at the convention saying, "No." We're going to do our utmost to protect slavery in the Constitution. Yeah, we get to, we get to Philadelphia. And they start this big fight. And as, and as a boy, I grew up near there, so I had a chance to sort of walk around the hollow halls and, right. and feel the vibe. Right. Uh, it's a weird vibe. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is a weird it is vibe. And so we come to these, this sort of hashing out. Right. Uh, and how do we get to, and I, I agree with you, um, that, you know, inasmuch as slavery is acknowledged in it, in the Constitution, in the three-fifths mm-hmm. um, for, purposes, for purposes of apportionment, mm-hmm. and the fugitive slave, slave clause, which, mm-hmm. as you pointed out, is fairly weak. But how do we get from a situation where people really come there loaded for bear? Yeah. Some people already see ahead Absolutely. that, you know, right. you know, I have a plantation. I need these people. Right. I need to go there. Right. And assert my property rights. Right. What's that battle like? Oh, it's huge. I mean, it's huge, and it's not huge. This convention, it's 55 lawyers in a room drawing up a contract. God forbid. Okay? It's really boring. Reading the notes of the Madison's notes, the essential source, it's like watching paint dry. It's really dull. Every once in a while, though, there'll be a great speech of great moral indignation. Governor Morris, whose peg leg is floating around here, I gather, um, uh, gives a great speech about slavery. It's all going to be fought out in, you know, where are you going to put a comma, where are you going to put there? But in, 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 it keeps coming up. And what keeps coming up is, A, how much power are you going to give to the new federal government to constrain slavery's growth? But B, are you going to allow the slaves to be recognized as property in the Constitution itself? So you mentioned the three-fifths clause. <clears throat> there are three basic places where this, this argument gets hashed out at various points during the convention. One is over the three-fifths clause, which you'll remember counts slaves as three-fifths of a person for the purposes of representation in the House of Representatives, as well as in the Electoral College later on, expanding the representation given to the slaveholding states. 
The second is a debate over the Atlantic slave trade, and that's really bitter. That's really nasty. Because the South Carolinians in particular, and I always say this, it's nothing personal, but it's always the South Carolinians. Sherman thought the same thing. Yeah. (laughs) I'm a great admirer of William Tecumseh Sherman myself, but never mind. Um, uh, it's always that they fight it tooth and nail because they see this as the entering wedge. And they say that if we cannot have the absolute power as we had before for the states to be able to, 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 to have full control over the slave trade, then we're going to be ruined. And they say this quite directly. And they manage to, because South Carolinians are also excellent politicians, they manage to get a, a, a stay of execution on the slave trade. They managed to extend it first to 1800 and then to 1808. But... And there's two reasons for they're so concerned about this. One is they want to make sure they keep their property and slaves. They also have to sell this document to the, to the folks back home. And they know if they go down there with the idea that the federal government can abolish the slave trade, they're going to be in big trouble. So they, they get these con- further concessions there. But again... But they the, did see the, the writing on the wall, though. They saw that. They're, they're nervous, mm-hmm. to, put it, to put it bluntly. Um, they're very nervous, but they still think that they have enough, they've done enough, they've gained enough at the convention to hold off the federal government from doing anything without their approval about slavery. And that the three-fifths clause is going to be a part of that, the 20-year extension is a part of it, and this sort of cockamamie fugitive slave clause is part of it as well. But at every step along the way, the convention makes sure that whatever wording is put in does not acknowledge the existence of property in man. They refer to slaves as persons or as persons held to service or labor. This is not because they feel bad. This is not because they're trying to evade. It's not because they're worried that, you know, people back home in the North might think that they were bad for, you know, they're not keeping slavery out of the Constitution, the word slavery out. They're keeping the thing slavery out of the Constitution in national law. And that makes all the difference. So when you read the debates... You see them all the time. Somebody gets up and says, wait a minute. If we say it this way, we're going to be acknowledging slaves as property. We can't do that. And it goes on and on and on, all the way to the very end, the very last stage of the Constitution's drafting. Those of you who read it, you may remember, was it went to a thing called the Committee of Style. And I say in my talks, everybody should have a Committee of Style. And sometimes I look at my fiancé and say, I have a Committee of Style. But the Committee of Style was going to do the last final wording to make sure that all the wording was correct. The Committee of Style included Alexander Hamilton, right, uh, in this town, um, James Madison, and Governor Morris. It's very weighted to, against slavery. They revise the Fugitive Slave Clause to make sure that the language is airtight. And they bring it to the convention. The convention gets up, two guys get up and say, no, no, we have to revise it further. On precisely this point, which was to keep slavery out of national law. What was the core idea here? I mean, you, you, we talk about the, the beginning of emancipation in the North. Yeah. Uh, and it, uh, is it, was there something about the Declaration of Independence? Was there something about the soaring language of inalienable rights mm-hmm. that, uh, that sort of pricked the conscience of these people in the start of this? Or was it a business transaction? Oh, I mean, I think it was much more the former. Um, I think, this, as I say, there's this great political and moral transformation. Mm-hmm. And the idea of inalienability is crucial. At the cornerstone of slavery, right, is the idea that one person owning another person is legitimate, right? Regardless of race, whatever, that is legitimate institution. 
coming out of the Enlightenment, and, and this is sort of in the Declaration, but not really, but it comes out in other places, is the idea, well, no, 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 no. Your own person is inalienable. You cannot be owned by someone else. You have self-ownership. Adam Smith, all these Enlightenment writers are talking about this. You own yourself. The institution of slavery is an act of robbery. The slaveholders are saying, you take away our slaves, you're robbing us. The anti-slavery people are saying, no, you've already robbed the person that you've enslaved because his self, his personhood, his labor is inalienable. It cannot be given to anyone else legitimately. But as you, as you also point out here, that the concessions go on, uh, we end up with a clause that tells the slave states, if one of the persons you own escapes, you have the right to retrieve them. Correct. Correct. That's the fugitive slave clause, which comes at the end. Understand, they didn't need a fugitive slave clause before because there was no northern emancipation. All 13 states at the beginning are all slave states. So if your slave runs away to, from Maryland to Pennsylvania, he's going to stay a slave. Northern emancipation makes it necessary for the slaveholders to find some way to make sure that if their slaves run away, whenever you have slavery, you have runaways, right? That's just the way it is. That's what slavery is about. Um, that, that you're going to get some sort of return. But the way the convention ends up passing that law, I mean, I, I say this to you, I said this to you earlier. If, 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 if a student had, had written a paper called the Fugitive Slave Clause and given it to me, I would have automatically given it a D because it's entirely written in the passive voice. It does not say that anybody actually does something. It says, slaves shall be returned, or words to that effect. So the federal government has no role. State governments have no role. It's just kind of, you know, what it's saying is that slaves who move from slavery into a, a free state or a state that's getting rid of slavery will not be free. That's an important point. But in terms of the mechanisms of how to do it, it's kind of weak. It's, yeah. it's not altogether clear. Very soon there's going to be supplementary legislation. But my point is that only that while that's the case, nevertheless, they describe the fugitive not as a slave, certainly not as property, but as a person held to um, service or labor. Now, that might sound, you know, again, like lawyers a niggling point, but it's a crucial point. Because persons held to service or labor, that could include an indentured servant. It could include an apprentice. It's not necessarily um, uh, affirming that these, these runaways are property. They're not being returned as property. They're being returned as persons to, uh, from whom service or labor is due. It's a small point, but as you lawyers in the, you, and anybody who's dealt with a lawyer, which is everyone, it's of enormous importance. It's of critical importance. Because, and here's why it's so important. Never mind, Brad, I just want to explain that had it gone differently, had slaves been described as, person, as, as property, then the new national government would have been powerless to do anything to contain the growth of slavery. That would have included being, you know, the, 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 the Atlantic slave trade wouldn't have happened. That's why they had to keep the word out. The federal government has complete control over the Western territories. That's also in the Constitution. If slaves are property, the federal government can do nothing about the spread of slavery into the Western territories even more so after the Bill of Rights and the Fifth Amendment, where you know, due process is, is established. You can't do anything. Well, they didn't do that 
And so the federal government could keep slavery out of the Western territories. It could also get, you know, keep slavery out of the place of the national government, which is later going to be called the District of Columbia. It has certain powers on the high seas. All of the issues, when you think about it, that led to the Civil War, that led to the rise of Abraham Lincoln and the Republican Party, all had to do with, does the federal government have the power to keep slavery out of the territories? If things had gone differently, mm-hmm. they couldn't have. But this, this, is, it begins to escalate, of course, uh, because we have repeated attempts um, to strengthen the sort of uh, runaway slave provision. Absolutely. And I think with, with 1793, we get one? Yes. There are, the Southerners keep pushing to, to make the, seven, the, the Fugitive Slave Clause give teeth to the Fugitive Slave Clause. And there's a law passed in 1793 that does implicate the federal government for the first time, and, but it's still not that strong. And it's going to continue. There's, there are big battles over fugitive slaves. There's actually a new book coming out by my friend Andy Del Banco about all of this. I'll give him a plug in advance. There's lots of um, battles about all of this. And there are state laws passed, and there are important judicial decisions. But it comes to 1850. And in 1850, the slaveholders demand that the federal government pass a new law with a much more draconian measure about returning fugitive slaves. And that's a key moment. So the fugitive slave issue is always going to be there. But at every point along the way, particularly in 1850, which is a turning point, really, in the, in the sectional crisis, the Northerners, the anti-slavery Northerners, are all saying, this is not right. This is not only right morally, it's not right constitutionally. Because the, um, the Fugitive Slave Clause says nothing about the federal government getting involved here. And it certainly doesn't recognize slaves as property. So the terms of the battle are going to be there. The, the, the pro-slavery side is arguing always, or not always, but from about 1819 on, that the Constitution recognizes slaves as property. They kind of make that one up, but, but it's there. They start making that claim. The anti-slavery people are saying no. And our friend uh, Frederick Douglass is out on 77th Street. Um, you got them both, Lincoln and Douglass, so it's perfect. Who says, he says at that point... After the uh, Fugitive Slaves Act, he said, uh, what we need to cure this is a half a dozen um, dead slave catchers. And so we see already in Douglas, who, uh, the, who's the prophet, as David Blake calls him, the prophet of freedom, he already sees that the only way you're going to purge this <laughs> thing from the land is blood. As his friend John Brown said on the way to the gallows. But he did see that. Let me pause here for one second um, and come back to 1850. Let's just freeze frame for a moment. Here we are in 2018. Uh, and over my career as a journalist and editorial writer, I, about 2000, it seemed to me, we began such a profusion and a deluge of books about slavery mm. and such a sort of a new, you know, mm-hmm. invigorated discussion. And here we are in 2018, we're practically talking about this as though it were yesterday. Mm-hmm. You know, what is, what is about our moment that's brought us back to this discussion? Oh, and it never went away, I don't mm-hmm. think. 
I mean, the Civil War, we've been fighting the Civil War since 1861, and it never ended. We had a truce. Um, it looked like it might go another way, but Reconstruction got overthrown. No, the issues that are involved in the Civil War, not just the racial issues, but the issues of power, property, mm-hmm. um, they're very much with us. It goes through ups and downs. For a long time, people wrote about the Constitution of the United States, for example, as if slavery wasn't an issue. I mean, you read Charles Beard or any of the great, you know, old historians. They didn't talk about it. For a long time, slavery was not talked about by historians. In the 50s and 60s, mm-hmm. given this, the impetus of the civil rights movement, slavery comes back as an issue to be talked about. But once it's opened up, it's not, it's not going to be quiet. Um, people are going to argue about every aspect of slavery um, right through to now. And look, after the civil rights movements, what should we say? After the, the events of 1968... Exactly 50 years ago, the assassination of Dr. King, the, 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 the white backlash to the civil rights movement, um, there was a, a period of optimism gave way to a period of pessimism about race relations in America, which is not unlike what happens in America all the, throughout. There are the pessimists who think the races can't get along. There are the optimists who think we can all get together. That's the essential. All right? So we go through that all the time. It hasn't, it hasn't really changed. I do think that it's especially alive today for, I mean, for obvious reasons. Okay? I mean, I won't go into all the specifics. Um, you can read the rest of my writing and find out about that. <laughs> um, but, 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 it, you know, but it's never really, re- really gone away. Um, what is interesting, and this gets to optimism and pessimism and back to Frederick Douglass, because there's a division among anti-slavery people um, on, on this very issue of the Constitution and slavery. Understand also... If this book does anything, I hope it will remind people not just of the history of slavery being important, but the history of anti-slavery being important. And we don't spend enough time talking about the history of anti-slavery in America. I hope that, you know, I'd love for the New York Historical Society to do an anti-slavery in New York because it was there and was powerful. Um, so there's a division in the anti-slavery movement between Frederick Douglass, the man on 77th Street, and the man who's up in Boston, William Lloyd Garrison. William Lloyd Garrison agrees to the, says to the Constitution, he agrees with the Southerners. He agrees with John C. Calhoun that the, the Constitution is a pro-slavery document through, through and through deserves to be burned, as he does in Boston in 1854. Frederick Douglass disagrees. And this is in David's book. It's, it's, it's a poignant, powerful part of the, the split between Garrison and, and Douglass on precisely this issue. Douglas comes to understand that, in fact, as he puts it very directly, the Constitution does not recognize property in man. Therefore, we can do something to stop the, sl- the spread of slavery. That's Douglas's position. Garrison doesn't agree at all, and they have a very bitter dispute. Douglas ends up agreeing with the likes of Abraham Lincoln, the man out in Central Park West, who also comes to understand that the Constitution does not admit of property in man, and that's going to be the basis of, in some ways... He doesn't understand that initially, though, does he? No, it takes a while, but he, pay, he catches on pretty quickly. Um, and certainly by the time he gets to the... Because you know Douglas sort of um, demeaned him when he was chosen. Oh, he's, yeah. When well, he's, he's, he, he said he's yeah. a person who doesn't have much in command of letters beyond the work he does. And for Frederick Douglass, that was kind of a, 
a real condescension because he saw himself as a man of letters, which he was. Which he certainly was. <laughs> uh, the, the, you know, as well as I do, the, 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 the Douglas-Lincoln relationship is a very interesting one. It's fraught. It's full of backs and forths. But I do see, you can see, you know, Garrison, um, um, Douglas never loses his respect for William Lloyd Garrison, ever. William Lloyd Garrison is the great white man who stood up against slavery in the 1830s, and he's never going to lose his respect for him. But this question, in some ways, is the... Um, what should we say, the, the stop along the way of Douglas moving from Garrison to Lincoln. Mm-hmm. So that by the end, I mean, he is talking about the... He, it is after Lincoln's assassination, but he talks about the Republican Party. You know, the Republican Party is the ship, all else is the sea. He becomes a much more political guy, and he has this poignant Which last Which is one of the moment. things that annoyed Garrison, Green. Very much so. I mean, he didn't, you know, where are you, Fred? <laughs> <laughs> Fred's off with, with Abe. Fraught relationship, never quite, but at the very end, of course, there's this very moving scene um, at, at, after Lincoln's second inaugural where Douglas shows up to pay his respects to the, to the, to, to the newly re-inaugurated President Lincoln in, in the White House. He is barred. They keep him out. They don't want to let a black man into the White House. And Lincoln sees what's happening. He says, bring my friend Douglas here. And he says... First he hears. Huh? He hears first. Yes. But, Doug, but, Douglas had a very big voice. Yes. And they were, said, they were, oh, ste- right, they were right. steering him into another room. Right. And he yells out, Mr. President. And <laughs> says, bring my, bring my friend Frederick Douglas up here. And he says, I want... Tell me if I'm wrong. Something along the lines of... Your opinion means more to me than anyone. What did you think of that speech I gave? Yes, today? he said, your opinion means more. It means than more anything. than anyone else's. And Douglas says, it was a sacred effort, sir. Mm-hmm. That's the symbolically, you know, and not long you later, see, he's you see, at that point, you see Lincoln moving toward Douglas, and both, both of them, they're mm-hmm. moving toward each other, and they see what they've done, and the war is now over, and um, or about to be over, and. Um, so there's this interesting move, though, on Douglas's part from Garrison to Lincoln without repudiating Garrison. But it's all about the same issue. You know, that, that's what's so interesting to me. You know, you know when you hear a word for the first time or you see it and you've never seen it before and then you see it for the next two weeks everywhere? That's kind of what happened to me with this book was that I thought I discovered something about what happened in Philadelphia in 1787 and then I saw it everywhere. But it is everywhere, it turns out. And it's there in the Douglas-Lincoln... Um, Frederick Douglass and Lincoln debates. They're actually, they're in the Stephen Douglass and Lincoln debates, too. It's in every argument that led to the Civil War, whether it's the Missouri Compromise, all that boring stuff you maybe remember from high school, all the way to secession. That's always the issue. So if things had turned out differently in 1787, all of American history would be different. Yeah, and some, I think it's that important. Yeah, there are some novels about that, too. Yeah. There are some yeah, novels about yeah. that. So basically, you were saying, you know, so was this, this hive mind of lawyers mm-hmm. in 1787? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, some people said that, some people disputed you, really. They said mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, the three-fifths clause and other things uh, imply that the framers, were, the framers of the constitutions were, were full on board with that. Right. You know, and you, you, can, you make a fairly strong argument that the wording of this begins to return right. and return and return and becomes right to the fore in the discussion. Right. right. Uh, in the end, before secession, we have the great insistence, um, which is why Sherman disliked South Carolina so much. Right. And so what are the South Carolinians saying on the eve of secession about this very point? Exactly right. 
I mean, you remember that South Carolina is the first state to secede in 1860. Lincoln gets elected by December, in November, and by December 20th, the South Carolinians have released their ordinance of secession. Go back, I suggest you go back and read the ordinances of secession, particularly from South Carolina. It, any doubt that the secession was about the Civil War, just read them. Because, uh, the, the secession, sorry, was about slavery. Go back and read them. Because they say, we are seceding because of slavery. You have to take them at their word, right? Even if they're from South Carolina. Um, I'm sorry, South Carolina, if you're listening. Um, they say quite directly, there are two things here, and it gets back to fugitive slaves. The reason we are seceding is because the new Republic, black Republican government, words to that effect, will not acknowledge our property rights. It's always about property rights. They say it about fugitive slaves, and they say it about the territories. That is why we're seceding, because the Constitution, by our lights, recognizes our property in man. Abraham Lincoln and the Republicans do not. We're out of here. So it's the cause of the Civil War. What's interesting about that, though, is I'll do very quickly. So in February 1861, seven of the states that have seceded send delegates to a convention in Montgomery, Alabama, where they're going to form the Confederate States of America, and they draft a constitution. And that constitution is almost word for word the U.S. Constitution, almost word for word except on precisely the places where slaves are not defined as property, where they say very explicitly, slaves are property. They undo what had done, or they did what wasn't done in 1787. It was crucial to them. So think of this. For 60 years, the Southerners have been saying, the slaveholders have been saying, the Constitution you know, recognizes slaves as property. And then they have to secede and write another constitution in order to make sure that slaves are property. <laughs> I mean, it's mind-boggling when you oh, think about just it. A, just a little commercial from Montgomery, Alabama. If you haven't been there, you can actually go to the Confederate White House. Yes, you can. Still there. And uh, you do, I, I commend you go, but also go to the new memorial to lynching victims that's open there. It is sensational. But also bring two handkerchiefs. But you, you should go. Actually, three handkerchiefs, because Kitty Corner from the, the, the South Carolina State Capitol, uh, where um, many where Jefferson Davis was inaugurated, is the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. Right. And that is Martin Luther King's church. And I, I really hope you go to all three of those places. Mm-hmm. It's an amazing so spot. Basically, we talk, you, you, know, you said that it's true that this, the, the Civil War never really ended. Mm-hmm. You know, to some extent, we're still fighting it. Mm-hmm. Um, and in my day-to-day life, uh, one of the things I periodically write about um, are attempts to suspend voting rights. Yeah. So in, uh, we've, we had the other day in Georgia, if you hadn't seen the story, um, where uh, the state has basically put about 50,000 votes, seven-tenths of them, um, black people, put them in some kind of limbo because they've basically been tech- checking and purging voting voting rules. And so this is, you know, I thought, uh, generally speaking, when I write about um, this attempt on many states Mm -hmm. to curb voting rights of black and brown people in particular, Mm -hmm. I I think very much, you know, about the 15th Amendment, Mm -hmm. and I think very much about the collapse of Reconstruction and that fight. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, to me, 
there are many new Jim Crows. This is a new Jim Crow, is the return of, in effect, the grandfather clause, in effect, the poll tax, in effect, all the way to keep mostly black, although not entirely black, but almost all poor people from going to the polls, from registering to vote, or not from registering, well, they used to be registering, but now from voting at all. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is is the most um, brazen attack on American democracy in front of us right now. There are many, but that's the most brazen. The fact that the person in in Georgia, actually, who's doing the stripping, the Secretary of State, is in fact the Republican Republican, um, nominee for governor, Right. So he's doing it for his own race. You know, it's pretty upfront. But the point is, these, you know, when we were growing up, right, it was for all the pessimism of the 70s, the Voting Rights Act had been passed. We thought we finally did it. It never ends. These guys won't give up. The other side, I won't say, the other side will not give up. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they didn't give up in 1865, they didn't give up in 1877, and they're sure not going to give up in 1965. Um, and in fact, you, I, you can find speeches of guys saying, you know, uh, in, the, in the wake of Brown v. Board of Education, it may, it'll take another 50 or 60 years, but we're going to take it back. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's true. It's true. And uh, it was interesting also, uh, one of the things that on, uh, not to bring up social media, but if you, if you happen to Follow my Twitter feed. If sort of in the know, once a month, I tweet uh, <laughs> the following thing. I say, history is the only education. Everything else is just training. Because it seems, in fact, that uh, young people in particular have no right. inkling right. of all this. Right. No inkling of all this. Well, one point that, that I want to bear in mind, though, is that I think people have become so pessimistic about the state of race relations in particular, but not just race relations, um, that, that there's a certain cynicism that's grown, though, I think, about the Constitution. And the idea was that the Constitution, from the very beginning, was weighted against social justice or whatever we want to put it. And I'm trying to put back in that it was a little bit more complicated than that, especially on the issue of slavery. Um, that the Constitution does open up possibilities. You just have to make the most of them. You know, you have to be a, uh, a Republican. You have to be an abolitionist. You have to make the most or of it. Or Thurgood Marshall. Or Thurgood Marshall, who was in that tradition. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you can do it. The tools are there. Don't give up. So don't trash the Constitution of the United States, but understand it for its possibilities, because they are there. That's all. Okay. Are we ready for questions here? Excuse me a second. There Bringing on the questions. Here they come. <coughs> Thank you. These are always the best. This is always the best part, as far as I'm concerned. Maybe wow. not. <laughs> Given Rhode Island's critical role in the slave trade, yes, uh, uh, one of the largest slave traders trading families in U.S. history. Yes. What um, prohibitions did the state take in the Constitutional Convention? Rhode Island was not there in mm-hmm. 1787. Tell you something about Rhode Island. Rhode Island was the most fractious, didn't want to have anything to do, it was a small state, didn't want to have anything to do with this enlargement of a great central government. However, Rhode Island is important because, as the questioner said, it was a Newport, and it was the center of the slave trade. The Brown family, or at least the major 
the John Brown side of the, the other John Brown, the John Brown side of the, of the, of the Brown family. But there are also a lot of Quakers in, in Rhode Island. And, and Moses Brown, John Brown's brother, brother, was a fierce anti-slavery advocate, convert. Um, so there's a fight inside of Rhode Island in the 1780s, and Rhode Island passes one of the very first gradual emancipation laws. So there is this great, you know, what should we say, point-counterpoint inside of Rhode Island history. 1784, they pass a gradual emancipation law with the most ringing denunciation of the idea of, of, of property in man of all of the, the emancipation laws during that period. So Rhode Island has a divided history as you know, much of America does. Uh, interesting. Was the end of slavery destined to be a bloody battle, as John Brown predicted, or could it have been resolved diplomatically? Um, well, again, you have to ask the South Carolinians about that. Um, because they weren't about to to, to let it be anything other than a war. Um, By the time you get... Now, look, Abraham Lincoln gets elected, and he hopes to be able to keep the South from seceding. He doesn't want to see the South. He doesn't want to have a civil war. And he thinks that he can, you know, persuade. And he tries to get Delaware. He tries to do everything he can to to, to keep the states in, but they don't want to do it. They're going to say, you're the end of it. We're gone. Um, So at that point, no, there was no other way. Um, there wasn't going to be a peaceful settlement of all of this. Lincoln was very clear about one thing, though. When he gets elected in, in 1860 and then before his inauguration, a whole bunch of compromises are laid out there. See, they're going to try to solve it, settle it diplomatically. And um, there's a whole bunch of I won't bore you with all the details. And Lincoln's kind of saying, well, all right, yeah, maybe. But on one thing he will not, he will not compromise, and that is... Um, allowing the federal government to stop the spread of slavery into the territories. He said, that is what I ran on. If they're not willing to give me that, I will not compromise. He says, he writes a very, very famous letter to a man named Lyman Trumbull in which he says, if the tug has to come, let it come now. Because this is it. And it was it. And in the end, it was the South Carolinians seceding, getting some others to join them, Lincoln says this is, this is treason, and the war begins. I don't think, given the strength of slavery, the power of slavery in um, the United States in 1860, um, that it could have come to anything else. Mm-hmm. I don't think it was going to. There's certainly yeah. no diplomatic way to do it. Yeah, John Brown was prescient. <clears throat> well, John Brown's another story. We can argue about John Brown, because I think John Brown, John Brown um, was crazy. Yes, he was. Okay. <laughs> so I just want to yeah, yeah. throw that oh, in. Yeah, he was, so, he was. I mean, he shows up at Chambersburg with Frederick Douglass, and Frederick Douglass says, you're crazy. <laughs> <laughs> um, he, 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 this is suicide. Um, you know, John Brown got the South very mad. But what John Brown did was to put a lot of pressure on the Northern Republicans. He did. And, and Lincoln plays it actually pretty well. A lot of the Northern Republicans get so freaked out by John Brown that they say, oh, I, we have nothing to do with this guy. Oh, he's a terrible revolutionary. Lincoln says, right cause, wrong methods. Mm-hmm. We're against slavery. He's against slavery. But you don't go starting a slave insurrection in South sure. Carolina. He tried to recruit Harriet Tubman yes. and, uh, and a few others who, who saw, the, saw the futility of this. They didn't want to die on that, on that particular hill. Right. Uh, and I'll, I'll, we, we keep alluding to uh, David Blight has a new 
uh, biography of Frederick Douglass. It's, it's magnificent. It really is. I, we both have read it. Magnificent. I, I commend you. It's, I've never seen anything like it. But, but wait a minute. We're plugging everybody else's book here but mine. Like, but yours. Yeah, I'm bad. <laughs> this is excellent. You have a picture in front of you. But we're, we're, in, we're in fact in, uh, in, um, on John Brown since, we, since yeah. you went to Dialogue on Crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Brown basically sits at Frederick Douglass's table in Rochester, comes, knocks on the door, comes and stays with Douglass, sits there and writes out his sort of constitution yeah. for, the, for the state of Virginia after he takes it over. I mean, he's basically sort of that far into it and trying to recruit everybody into it, into that thing. Um, do you believe, this, I, I think I know who this is from. Do you believe it is reasonable to judge Washington and others from today's perspective rather than a, 19, a 1776 to 1796 perspective? I mean, look, I'm an historian, right? so I believe that you judge things historically, and you judge them from where they stood rather than where we, where we stand. Um, that doesn't mean that we can't look back with regret that things were not different, but, you know, it, it, it is, it is I, think, I think it's foolish. I mean, put it this way. A hundred years from now, we're going to be judged. You want to be judged by their standards or by our standards? Because their standards might, might, might make every person in this room look terrible. So be careful. Have respect, humility in the face of history. Because history is going to change long after we're gone, and things are going to go in directions that we not, may not predict, for, for good or for evil. The world could be better than it is now, or it could be worse than it is now. We're still going to look terrible, maybe. Well, it's, uh, it's, uh, about, about Washington, someone sent me an email about this question before I came. Uh, I would say that... <clears throat> I, I, my, as a, as you see, I'm a black person, uh, <laughs> and my family uh, is from Virginia. My family is from Virginia back to the 1700s. My name, not my, certain, my name, my given name is on, is on the roster of residents of Jamestown. So I have a, you know, and I once asked my mother, I'm like, I, why'd you, right. my, my brother's names are Brent, Brian, Bruce, Blake, and Brad, I'm Brent. I asked my mother, where'd you come up with those names? And she said, well, you know, I just wanted to, you know, have something that like sound masculine names. And I went back and looked up the manifest of Jamestown, and they're all Jamestown huh. names. Huh. So basically, uh, I, so I have a relationship to the Virginia presidents, in a way, uh, and I, I admire them, and I scold them, and I feel that I feel an ambiguous, ambiguous feelings toward them. But for Washington himself, um, as I started this discussion talking, Washington was sitting with a, a British right. uh, leader, admirable, admiral of the British forces, who was lecturing to him yes. about the meaning of inalienable rights. So Washington was not uh, a mm-hmm. person who didn't have right. other examples right. around him. Right. He wasn't, you know, there, not everyone around him embraced the property of man the way he did. Mm-hmm. And when he finally um, freed his slaves, he did the same, in the same way that people did in the Mid-Atlantic regions, mm-hmm. posthumously. Uh, and to his credit, he gave specific instructions in his will. You shall do this on this day. Mm-hmm. You shall not mm-hmm. tarry. You shall, 
you shall do it according to my wishes. But so oftentimes people say, you can't really judge those guys and gals by our standards. By the standards of the day, there were examples around of yeah. people who did not hold the view he held, and those people, in my estimation, were morally correct. I agree with that, and, and, and it's important to understand, I mean, not just Carlton, the British general, he had all sorts of reasons. You know, Tom Paine was against slavery, and there are lots of anti-slavery voices on the American side as well. Um, Benjamin Rush, I can go through the list. Right. So it's important to understand that there were Americans in the, in the 1780s who we can commend. My point is only this, though, and that's just something we have to I come back to. While that's true, I commend those people much more highly but, but slavery was such a normal institution for so long that I commend them for being in advance of where the rest of the uh, rest of the society was. I mean, white society we're talking about now. Mm-hmm. So we can do both of these things at the same time. Mm-hmm. Insofar, though, as these figures, like Washington, Jefferson, I mean, this gets to the monuments controversy in some ways. I mean, they're still with us. We're supposed to, you know, think we have to have opinions about them because they are such magnificent figures, supposedly. Mm-hmm. And when we find out the realities that those statues are feet of clay and worse, then we get angry. Mm-hmm. And we should be angry. Well, I'm a, lot, I'm a lot less angry than I was when I was 18. Okay. Uh, and I think that's the beginning of an education. That's right, my point. Right. And, it's the beginning of an education where you bit, can figure it out. But basically, even now, uh, when I, some people, because as a Virginian, uh, people joke with me about that my affinity for Jefferson. And I said, well, you know, Jefferson, I've, ri- I've written, you know, hundreds of thousands of words about Jefferson from a reporter's standpoint. And I said, you know, he was a flawed guy, but he had collectively with a few others the idea of America. Yeah. The, I- the idea uh, that, in fact, uh, gave uh, me room to some extent to to basically win a full citizenship eventually, you know? And so you have to, when you go to Monticello, and also, also to plug Monticello, the new Sally Hemings right. exhibit there, uh, I commend you to see it because it has suddenly brought what was sort of off to the side a little bit more to the center of right. that place. Uh, the place still exists among some humans today that some humans don't deserve to be as free as others or given the same rights as others. How do we begin to tackle this still, uh, if it's still in effect today? Wow. Fight like hell. Um, I mean, look, slavery still exists in the world. I mean, it's not as if we've gotten rid of slavery around the world. Um, and there are, there are you know, conditions which are, if not slavery, not the ownership of one person by another, are you know, part of slavery's afterlife. You know, slavery certainly had an afterlife in America and, and around the world. So, um, you know, I think that we have to, you know, stand up for it firmly wherever we can. Right. I mean, be an abolitionist. Right, be an abolitionist. Join the abolitionist movement. No it's, question. It's still there. We have to abolish slavery. Um, how important were the slave trade petitions of 1790? What were they? Ah, I, I'm glad you asked that question, whoever you are. Um, because I have a whole chapter about it, or part of a chapter about it in this book, so I commend you to read it. Um, in 1790, three petitions come before Congress. One signed by the... the, the, the uh, before I even get to that, the very first anti-slavery society in the history of the world was founded in Philadelphia in 1775, about five days before Lexington and Concord. Five days before Lexington and Concord. 
the battles of Lexington and Concord. So right at the revolution and anti-slavery, there are these two revolutions going on. In 1787, the head of that organization is Benjamin Franklin. In 1790, he's about to die. The last public act that Benjamin Franklin undertakes is to sign that petition. It's under his signature. There are two other petitions. They come before Congress. They're asking Congress to do some really radical things, like end the slave trade now. Or indeed, Franklin's petition, do everything you can to get rid of slavery. Now, you can imagine how the South Carolinians and other deep lower southerners you know, greeted that with great hostility. And yet, the House of Representatives actually voted to send that to committee. And they actually draft a report. And the report kind of says, yeah, we can get rid of slavery a little bit. Now, the report gets undone. It's a whole story about all of that. And in the end, in fact, it's a defeat for the anti-slavery petitioners. But it's a defeat with a residue of triumph. The residue being, first of all, that there was a lot of activity between the the abolitionists outside of Congress and people inside Congress. There was a real anti-slavery caucus inside the House of Representatives in 1790. Who knew? (laughs) And and they were there. And that's really sort of the point. Anti-slavery is not is going to be a beleaguered movement through much of American history from the 1790s all the way to the 1830s, indeed all the way to the 1850s, but it's there, and there are people fighting. There are people that you've never heard of. Um, George Thatcher from Massachusetts, a man named James Sloan from New Jersey, who's my favorite because he's really wacko. Um, James Sloan is like if you had a SNCC organizer and he had been put into Congress in 1810, that would be James Sloan because he was always disrupting things, but he was also a congressman. Um, this fight has actually happened. So I want people to understand that, you know, even if the fight isn't making it to the top level of history, if not the most familiar thing, it's there. It's underneath. It's roiling. And the petitions that came out in 1790 were the beginning of all of that. The very first Congress has petitions being sent to it against slavery. Remember that, because it's going to continue all the way through. Um, well, I'll do, we'll do one more. Um, what, if anything... Someone's quoting you, back to yourself. What, if anything, can be done if the other side won't give up? Oh, I just think you have to remain vigilant. I mean, when you win, don't, don't, don't rest on your laurels. I mean, don't start saying, hey, we won, it's great, because you're not, it's not going to end, um, at least not, certainly not in our lifetime. Um, uh, no, the, 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 you have to remain vigilant. Um, um, and, and understand that, and another thing, and this gets back to your point, Brent, about the voting rights stuff, is that all the old tools can be brought back in a new form. And be careful when people start talking about, you know, the integrity of the vote. You know, mm-hmm. you know that's like, sounds to me like racial integrity. You know, it's about, you know, keeping things, you know, integral, which means basically shutting out people. Um, but those tools, we don't have the grandfather clause anymore because we haven't had slavery back a generation. We don't have the poll tax anymore because that was outlawed in the, in the, in the, in the, in the um, 1964 Civil Rights Act. Or the Voting Rights Act, rather. But, um, but you can find other ways to do it, like you know, voter you know, um, auto IDs and all the various ways you can do it. There's lots of ways that that side is going to keep on scraping, and they are indefatigable in defense of their, of their privilege. And, um, um, you know, the only way we can, you know, in the end, the only way you can win is the way that Sherman won, I'm afraid to say. Well, 
Uh, I would say... I mean, now, metaphorically. I would say, metaphorically. I would say that... Um, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, metaphorically. Uh, it's important... That's what John Lewis said. It was. It's important yeah. to understand... Um, often, uh, in my writing, I try to explain this on the editorial page, it's important to understand that what you're seeing is a cyclical reoccurrence yes. of an anti-democratic small d, yes. anti-democratic strain in American politics and American society. It comes. You know, I, was, uh, had, I had this experience in college when I was just a teenager, and I gave a little speech about the internment of the Japanese in World War II. And I, you know, I had just discovered that, and I was just completely outraged by it. And I was probably the only black person in the class, and I was in front of an auditorium giving this speech. And the professor stood up, and he shouted. And he said, my father was against it. My father was against it. And I looked up like, what's he talking about? It was Nicholas Biddle's son. Oh, my Lord. The attorney general under Roosevelt, Nicholas Biddle. And he said, my father was against it. And he proceeded to talk about how... In fact, in his household, this was the this was the source of shame that we would put Americans in prison for looking different than the rest of us. But this was something that was going to recur, and that good people had to stand up against it. Right. And you know, and you know, there, a lot of people think social media is organizing, um, and it's not. Um, organizing is you know, getting people to register to vote. Organizing is campaigning, you know, against people who have anti-democratic tendencies. Organizing is doing that. And I often tell people all the time that the Constitution, the rights it guarantees are not fixed, that we must win them anew every day. And I'll leave it there. Very good. Thank you. Thank you. That was great. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow the New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NY History, or visit us at nyhistory.org.